You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Former guest of the show, Neil Oliver, and the author of the new book, Hauntings, A Book of Ghosts and Where to Find Them. Neil, welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast, my friend. Oh, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to you too. It's lovely to see you. Um, I enjoyed our conversation the last time and uh, it's been too long. So um, anything you want to chat about is good for me. Fantastic. Well, as you mentioned there, you've been on the, the show twice before, um, first in 2020 and last going out in 2021. So um, yes, it's been a long time coming. Really appreciate you coming back. Um, today, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different from uh, our last episode. Our first episode focused on your book, Wisdom of the Ancients, which is a book I recommend to so many people. And I've bought probably so many times as, as gifts for people, one of my favorite <laughs> books. Um, but today we're talking about this new book, Hauntings. Now, for a lot of people, they may be turned off by that idea. But this book, it doesn't aim to convince anyone of anything. And it doesn't really aim to debunk any of these stories so for anyone out there listening now who is thinking about instantly you know dispelling this subject and 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 listening to these stories what would you say to that person who may just not be open-minded to these types of conversations it's an excellent place to start the conversation lewis um i, I broadly speaking i um share your I reflect the tone of your introduction there. What I can say is that I've always been open-minded. That, that that's really, or, or perhaps I should maybe I should say I'm agnostic in, in the sense that I find it hard to come down hard and fast either side of an argument. Because I'm always affected by and influenced by the last person I talked to. Because I'm I'm always interested, especially where someone speaks to me passionately or, or seems to come uh, at me or to me from a position of having read a lot, seen a lot, been around the houses, uh, you know, having a lot of experience. And I, I, I'm, I'm always disinclined to dismiss a point of view at all. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just always enthralled to listen to someone talk passionately about something. And the simple fact of the matter is because of the kind of television that I've made in the past. Now, I started making history of a historical, uh, archaeological flavor. In, around 2000. So it, it's been quite a while. And although I, I hadn't uh, really spoken about it or written about it before, the truth is that over and over again, contributors that I spent time with during a filming day, now, 
filming days can be quite long. You know, if you're out on location, middle of nowhere, on a hillside, on a battlefield, on a cliff top, everyone's taking a long time to get into position. You're dependent on the weather, you're dependent on all sorts of things to get the filming just right. And it, it means that you end up during the course of a day with a contributor, someone that, you've, that that's going to be your interviewee for the day. You spend maybe an hour talking to them on camera, but in the gaps in between, you spend the whole day chatting to the person. And I'm talking about sober academics, serious scientists, uh, regular folk like you and me, all kinds of people from every walk of life. And I, I could not help but notice down through the years that one person after another in a gap in the filming would say, you know, don't tell anyone, but the funniest thing happened to me here a few years ago. And out would come what you or I, most people would call a bit of a ghost story, a bit of an encounter with something that that person couldn't rationally explain. And over the years, 20 years of getting on for it, I just collected quite a, a compendium of stories like that. And I thought, there's something worth investigating here. And the, the people that, that I was talking to, some people were completely sold on the fact that they had seen a ghost. Other people recounting an anecdote were just unable to explain exactly what it might have been that had happened, the feeling they'd had, the thing that they had glimpsed, whatever, the experience that had unfolded. And I thought, I'm going to write these down. And that was the, you know, the back, that's the backstory for hauntings. And what I what really drew me into the book is this is um, a subject area that I I'm not very familiar with. I never have been. Um, you know, traditionally, if you'd asked me, you know, do I believe in ghosts? I, all my 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 young years and my adult life, I would say no. But as you mentioned there, when you speak to someone who's quite passionate about a topic, when you hear stories from people who are passionate, it can't help but really open your mind to the possibilities i had a similar experience a few months ago i i interviewed um a uh, dr stephen meyer and, and and his research is into intelligent design something that i've never really given thought but after that episode i could almost feel his passion through it and then it led me to start exploring questions didn't mean i necessarily believed or wanted to believe but I thought I saw a passion in that person. I thought there's got to be a reason why they're so passionate. So that's what I've sort of got out of this book. And for everyone listening out there who may be in a similar mindset and relating to what I've said, but there, what would you say if you if you could put it down to one is the most compelling story or case that you've studied that may grab someone's attention who maybe brand new to this subject area? Oh, good one. Um, I think there's about, there's 20 odd, nearly 30 stories, I think, in the in the book, but there's there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more besides, you know, there's a, there are many, uh, you know, curves in the road and things, you know, and, 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 and things that I go off on. 
I, I mean, I mean, I think it's worth if, in case I don't mention it bef again, uh, while it's on my mind, I, 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 telling stories about the, the, the ghosts, for one of it, it's been with us from the beginning. By which I mean, we've been writing for about five thousand years, give or take, and from the earliest stories, there have been ghosts in the stories. I mean, one of the earliest stories that we have record of written down, you know, older than the Old Testament is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it has in it stories that echo Noah and the Flood and the rest. But it's also about a ghost. So, and that's true all the way through. So, From as long as we could write things down, people have bothered to write about the dead and the return of the dead and and that makes you think well before there was writing and people were just telling each other stories just oral accounts presumably they were telling each other ghost stories then yes. that pe people speculating about life and death has always been there and and I think in the, in the in the in the sort of scientific period that we have lived that we lived through that's maybe three hundred years old the the scientific uh, method this you know the science model has driven to the edge a lot of storytelling and it means that now in the twenty first century when we try when we come to try and uh, express experiences that so many people have had we don't have up-to-date vocabulary and grammar for those stories and and people find themselves talking in antiquated ways about experiences that are of the here and now you know people are still having these experiences so that, that, that that's part of why i think that we have to be open-minded about all of this stuff just open-minded just listen just listen to people talk and and decide for yourself if you think that they're making it up or if they're telling the truth. Now, but to get back to your, your question about the most compelling, one of the stories in the book towards the end is about, it's, I'm Scottish and uh, I've uh, I had many occasions, many reasons to visit the island of Skye off the west coast of Scotland, big island off the west coast of Scotland. And over the years, I had heard tell of the wee black car, the small black car. Various people in fun and, you know, you know, just for want of an interesting anecdote to tell you, would, would give a version of, of, the, of the wee black car on Sky. And suffice to say, from about the 1930s, up until the 1960s, more people had an encounter with the wee black car on Sky than you could count. Locals, uh, tourists, whatever, insiders and outsiders. And the, 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 the experience followed a, a, a certain format. People would be on the road and... Uh, Certainly in the 1930s and 40s, you know, the roads on Sky were single track. And with passing places, you know, those wide spots in the road yes. where people would pull in to let, you know, the oncoming traffic or, or, or traffic moving faster from behind go through. 
So the experience was quite often single track. And there was an etiquette about, you know, pulling in to let people pass. And times without number, people would see coming in the distance a wee black car, usually moving fast, you know, giving off all the indications that the person inside it or the people inside it were, were in a hurry. And so the inclination was for people to pull in, pull into a passing place to let this come through. And it would it'd be coming on fast and then it would go into a bend or, or into a bit of dead ground and it wouldn't reappear. It would just vanish. People would go, I'm there, where did that car go? And it, so it was a recurring story that people told. And it very often happened on the road on Sky to Kailikan, which is where you if you're on Sky and you're coming to catch the ferry, in the, in the, there's a bridge now. There's, for a long time, there's been a bridge back to the mainland of Scotland. But at the time that I'm talking about, the only way from Sky to the to the mainland of Scotland was a ferry. And the, most of these sightings were on the road heading for Tylekin, which, which which is where you would catch the boat to go across to the Kyle of Lochalsh on mainland Scotland to continue your journey. And so hundreds and hundreds of accounts of this thing down through the decades local kids would look out for the wee black car anytime they were out tourists would turn up at hotels and check it in they would say i had the funny thing happened i was you know on the road here and wee black car disappeared yeah yeah heard it that happens all the time and then in in i can't remember the date now it's in the book sometime in the 1960s there was a tragedy a car, there was a, a queue of cars getting onto the ferry at Kyleekan, heading for mainland Scotland. And one of the cars on this particular day was a wee black car, a wee Austin, a, a 1934 Austin. And travelling inside it were a man and two women and a child. And there's the, the slight variations on the account of what happened, but it, it would appear that the, the man in question was a minister a man of the church, and he was travelling with these these other three, the two women and the child. And for whatever reason, you know, getting a car onto a ferry can be a little bit unfamiliar or a little bit anxiety-inducing for people not used to doing it. And the woman whose car it was asked the man, the minister, to, to get the car onto the ferry. And so they swapped places. He got into the car. She was in the passenger seat. They... Uh, and something happened. There was an, a, a, an accident, and he drove. He, he drove it. The car moved at speed across the ferry, and out the other side into the water. And it so it landed upright in the water, and it wasn't deep, but it was the car was submerged, and someone jumped into the water from the ferry, tried to break the windows. The man, the driver, managed to escape from the car, but the two women and the child drowned, and. And, and apparently the, the the minister who escaped was was ruined by it. You know, it broke him, the, the fact that he had, uh, you know, he'd left behind two women and a child who had died in the, in the encounter. And from that day, the little black car, the wee black car, was never seen again. So after 30 years of being a regular occurrence, it stopped. No one ever saw it again. So you're left to wonder if, the, if that was if those experiences were all some kind of collective premonition of a tragedy to come. Not a, not a haunting, a haunting from the future. Not, not, some, not, an, not an event that had happened in the past that was lingering. 
but something terrible that was yet to come. And once it came, no one ever saw the warning because the time for warning had passed. And to me, you know, it's one of two stories, really, one of a few stories in the book that I, that I would say that haunt me. But the wee black car on Sky, I think, what is that about? So many witnesses to it before it happened. Yes, yes. Um, interesting that that story ends with, with nobody um, seeing it again, because one of the questions I tend to ask around subjects like this or, or religion are if people are seeing things or having experiences that then kickstart their belief or whether that they have a, a, a preset belief and they're going out to, to seek validation and whether those experiences are uh, genuine and start a belief or that they are just you are almost looking for them to, to to confirm what you already believe but in that yeah. instance that would that would counter that argument if if no one's seen it since yeah i mean it, it's just that there's a I, I, my mum uh oh a lot of years ago now gave me a book it's sometimes on my desk i don't think it's i don't think it's here now uh it'll be, it won't be far away it's it's by an art uh, an astronomer a scientist from glasgow university called archie roy a very eminent scientist and as well as being uh, an astronomer and I think a physicist but he's certainly an astronomer at Glasgow University in the he, he was he was alive up until the uh, the early 1990s I think can't remember when Archie Roy died but he had he was a professor at Glasgow University of such renown that he was the he, he happened to be uh, the man that that NASA came to to plot out the orbits that the Apollo uh, uh, spacecraft should make in their approach to landing on the moon yeah. in 1969. He was a serious guy, a serious scientist. But also, at the same time, for about the last well, 10 more years of his life, he also held a chair at Glasgow University that I think was created for him, and it was the chair of parapsychology. Mm. Because he believed that as... That, that, the kind of uh, events that were being described by people who were whatever families who were experiencing poltergeists or or, or or people who were experiencing haunted houses disturbances he he adopted the position that that was the very area that science ought to address he said we should approach this as scientists and consider what it is that's happening come up with hypotheses think of experiments test them look at the data He's a serious guy. And the book in question is called A Sense of Something Strange because he, he, he said he remained agnostic, really, broadly agnostic about the paranormal until, until the end of his life. But he said that so many experiences that he had had, uh, things that he'd heard, stories he'd been told, places that had he had been had left him with something that he could only describe as a sense of something strange. There was just, there was just something that he couldn't, to which he could not get to the bottom of. Uh, and I, I think that, it, uh, ask me your question again. Just lost um, my train of thought. Just whether the, um, 
you know, people have experiences that start a new belief or they try to validate existing beliefs. Yes. So he went into it, he went into it as a scientist. Yeah. And his, if he had a conclusion, it was that there were, there were, he ended up thinking that there was something, there was something, an area of the of phenomena that he could not explain away scientifically. Yes. And I, I think that's, I think that is engaging and it's, it's deserving of respect. And I think that, that people who simply approach all of the testimony from people who, who seem to have experienced or seen or heard something that they can't explain, to dismiss all of that as just hocus pocus, bunkum superstition, I don't think is good enough. Because as I said at the top of this, I've listened to so many people tell me stories like that that I refuse to accept that they're all lying. Some people might have made something, maybe some people, maybe a, maybe a percentage of the total thought I'm going to, I'm going to pull this guy's leg. I'm going to make something up or I'm going to, I'm going to tell them the story that I used to tell my granny. I'm, you know, I'm sure there's a, a, a sample within the total that, that would, that would be that. But too many people of too many different personalities and backgrounds had something to tell me that was you could only say was inexplicable i thought you're not i don't i'm not convinced that you're making this up you experience you experienced something and maybe at some point the science will be there science will be there that will explain it that will say yeah this is this can be explained thusly at the moment we don't have that you know, we don't have that science in all of these instances. And until that moment comes, I feel I have to remain open-minded. I've, re I've remembered, you know, when you said, what's the one that's the most compelling? There's another story that, that I got quite late in the day. When I was writing the book, my agent, my book agent, Eugenie, uh, contacted me and she said, you know, by the by, if you're writing a book about, you know, hauntings and, and so on, you really ought to speak to my friend um, Saskia. And... Uh, and get her story and I did I, I phoned this woman up and uh, she she um, she had this story to tell about her family and it was specifically it was about her grandmother and her grandmother no longer among us died some time ago uh, but it, I think I think if memory serves forgive the vagueness I think it was sometime I think possibly in the 90s or the 80s this lady was uh, was attending a a house party in uh, Dorset, and at this point in her life, in her eighties, she had lived in Dorset for most of her life. You know, she'd spent decades there. She'd lived in various addresses in in Dorset, and so she was in this house party, and she overheard some people talking, and she realised they were talking about a haunting, and that, that a young couple that she didn't know and had never previously met were describing how their house was had been so haunted that they had had to move out. So, you know, her ears pricked up at this. What an interesting story. And so she kind of butted into the, worked her way into the conversation and said, you know, I've, I've lived various places around here. I'm very interested in what you're saying. Where, where was this? Where did it happen? And they named the they named, the, they named the cottage and the address. And this lady 
my agent's friend's grandmother had lived there. She had lived in this cottage in the 1940s during World War II. And so now she's really interested because it's a house she remembers. She said, that, that cottage wasn't haunted when I was there in the 40s. And the couple said, it is now. And she said, what, so what is it? What's happening? What, what were you seeing? And they, they said, well, it, it, basically, it, more times than we want to think about, when we're sitting in the living room of an evening, there's a, a young woman suddenly there. Uh, and she's got brown hair and she's young and she's wearing, you know, she's wearing a dress and she's crying, broken hearted, you know, thick, salty tears running down her cheeks. And then she turns and faces the fireplace and she stands beside the fireplace and she bangs her head on the wall. She nods forward and bumps her forehead against the wall over and over again often enough and with enough force that blood we can see blood on the wall and blood starts to run on the wallpaper and then it's gone and it's too upsetting we can't we just can't be there anymore we can't we can't deal with it we've we've gone we've left the place now and now the grand this grandmother didn't say to the couple at the time but she knew that in the 1940s, she had been living there with a, a toddler and a baby, her two youngest children. And she'd been, you know, and it was the war. And her husband was away in the war. He was serving. He was an officer in the British Army, working in intelligence. And there had come a day when he had contacted her somehow, telegram or whatever, letter, phone call, I don't know, and had said, I need you to look at, I'll go through my papers and find some information for me. And she did. She went through a briefcase or whatever. And she found, amongst other things, correspondence from another woman. And she realised that her husband was or had been having an affair. And she remembered that for a few terrible nights with her toddler and her really newborn baby, alone in this cottage, husband away in the war, she had cried and cried, and she it was who had turned her face to the wall and banged her head on the wall until blood flowed. And so she, this lady, alive, still alive in her 80s, was a ghost. Some aspect of her experience of trauma was still in the cottage that she'd lived in in the 1940s. And now, where do you go with that? What do you make What do you make of that? Now, as I say, I've been told a lot of stories, but in this instance, why would this, why would this lady have made this up? Yes. Why would she? It's possible that she made it up for whatever reason, but it's also possible that she was telling the gospel truth yeah. and that in some way, that science has yet to explain the extreme traumatic experience of a few days or a few weeks in the 1940s, long after she had left that place, it was still there, like the perfume left behind by someone who has walked out of the room 
like the cigar smoke from someone smoking a cigar who's now gone somewhere else. But you walk into the room after them and you go, perfume or cigar. Some emotional residue left behind in the room. And I think, can I dismiss that as just nonsense? No, I've just, I just remain open-minded. Yeah, that, that instantly um, reminds me of, I've heard you talk about this before, of this theory around an emotional residue being left behind in, um, you know, places like a battlefield where, you know, people uh, have experiences, paranormal experiences, this idea of there being such a thing as such intense emotion, such intense trauma that it, it leaves behind a residue of its own that's, as you mentioned there, sort of unexplainable in scientific terms. Yeah, I mean, why not? Why not? Um, why, why, would, why is there not a possibility that there's a scientific explanation uh, back up for, for something like that? You know, I mean, if you imagine a battlefield, ancient or modern, you know, somewhere that hundreds or perhaps thousands of, of men and boys came together in a hellish few hours or a, in a hellish hour on a day or whatever. And they all collectively at the same time experienced something terrible. Then, then the people they left behind who mourned, who maybe lived in the vicinity and came to the battlefield and found their bodies and had to deal with the bodies and burying the dead and so on and so on. So much emotion experienced and expressed in the same place at the same time. It, is it is it so is it so unreasonable to imagine that something of that might have lingered? And within the book, as I, I, I describe it, I think in, partic in particular in relation to the Battle of Ogrim. In, uh, during the Williamite Wars uh, uh, in Ireland in the, in the 17th century, and, and, and then again somewhere like Culloden, uh, and, and, and then again in, in relation to something like the, the, the legend of the Angel of Mons in the First World War, uh, there, are, there are innumerable accounts down through the years of, of people experiencing something at the time and then in the aftermath people revisiting that place and catching or or saying testifying and we have no reason to believe that they're all lying that they're catching a glimpse of something like a you know when we, why not i mean we talk about people accept that in an old-fashioned television set that was picking up you know an analog television not digital that was picking up frequency, you know, radio frequency, television frequency. People accept that within the white noise in between the channels with some of the residue left over from the Big Bang, you know, at the start of the universe, that some of the background static from that explosion, whatever, 14 billion years ago, was still there and still detectable by, you know, a television set in the 70s and 80s and whatever if that's if we accept that why wouldn't why wouldn't it also be possible that in some analogous sense a f a, another kind of frequency generated and transmitted by a shared experience a hundred years ago or 500 years ago might not still be detectable 
you know, as you and I, are, as I'm sitting here in my room and you're sitting there in your room, you know intellectually that data, mobile phone calls, texts, radio, television is all there in your room. And if you turned on the relevant receiver, it would be there. But you can't receive it. You can't, you can't listen to Radio 2 or Netflix without a bit of kit beside you that decodes that and, and translates the invisible into something that you can see. And so why, why isn't it also possible at the same time that some other frequency from 500 years ago, from a moment in the past, is there, like the white noise from the Big Bang 15, 14 billion years ago? If you could turn on the right bit of kit, it would go, oh, right enough, there it is. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic argument and, and really something that I'm sure a lot of people are, will be thinking about right now as they're listening. Um, one thing that I'm, I'd love to ask you about from all the people you've met and talked to is when I think of hotspots for ghost hunting, people, it's a, it's a very big hobby for people who actively want to go out and have an experience for me as you were met as you were talking describing that the the, the woman and and the, and the war i couldn't imagine anything worse than witnessing that myself and so it doesn't appeal to me to seek out an experience so when you look at real big ghost hunting hotspots like uh pendle hill with where they were the witch trials that so many people flock to, 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 to catch a glimpse of, of something. Why do you think they actively want to see something? What do you think they're hoping to get out of that experience? Um, what is their benefit? What do they want to find? I suppose it, it's also reasonable that I think, well, I mean, fear of death is one of the fundamental uh, aspects of the human condition. Yeah. Uh, most people, if they're honest, would say that they f they're apprehensive, at least, about what happens next. And and the idea of something like, like, like Archie Roy, you know, Archie Roy said towards the end of his life that if he when he died, if he didn't, if some aspect of him didn't survive, he was going to be very, very surprised um, that m many people hope at, at least that there's something after death, some survival. And that, like, like ghost stories, is an ancient uh, texture to what it is to be human and alive. You know, the great unique selling point of Christianity that no other... Uh, monotheism had offered up until that point, any other religion had offered really up until that point, was the idea of eternal life after death, heaven, in the presence of God. And that was a, that was a big, that was a big unique selling point of Christianity. And it was a big, it was a big part of why after a period of time, it began to attract a lot of, a lot of followers and, and, and a lot of adherents. And so likewise, where, where people have, have, have experienced loss, uh, as well as worrying about what will happen to them to themselves when they die, perhaps even more uh, intensely, people want to be reassured that their own loved ones who have died 
have not just ceased to be, that there's some survival. It's not, you'd have to be, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to understand why a lot of people would, would want that. And I'm, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying that by wanting that they're deluded, maybe they're right, but you can understand where the, surely you can understand where uh, that desire comes from. So, but that said, I have, when I think I've never gone to, well, I say in the book, I think the opening line of the book is that I've always wanted to see a ghost, which I have, I'd love it. <laughs> but, and, and, I've, and I know that I've been in lots of places where a person might see a ghost. You know, I've been in haunted, I've been in castles and graveyards and battlefields and all sorts of places where people have, have otherwise on other days uh, reported sightings of, of ghosts. But I, but I can honestly, I can honestly say though that it, while I understand people going looking for ghosts, I haven't ever actually gone looking for. I've, I've had moments here and there, you know, and it, but, you know, where I, in a location where I know that other people have experienced certain things, where for a moment I've thought, oh, I wonder if, oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll see something or hear something that I can't explain, and it's you know. It, it hasn't it hasn't actually happened for me but i don't dismiss people that want to go looking i understand it. i've been in there, there, there's lots of places i've been in the landscape like st necton's glen and cornwall and I, 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 which is just a name that comes to mind instantly where, where people go when they're experiencing intense um emotion and they and they want reassurance from the invisible they go to st necton's glen and they leave they leave trinkets and photographs and things in the hope that some connection will be made between here and the next world. But I say again, I've heard from too many people that, that they didn't go looking for the experience they had. And they're the, they're, the ones, they're the ones that I really listened to, people that were taken by surprise by something. You know, they were just, they were just there. There's a, there's a story in the introduction to the book, um, a guy that I, that I, and I honestly, I, well, it's not unique. I mean, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people over the years, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people for television. So, you know, and, and I didn't keep a diary. I didn't, I, and, and so some of them, I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly where and when, who, but as I recount in the, in the book, I was with a guy filming. I know it was in the Highlands of Scotland. I don't think it was all that far away from here. I live in Stirling. I think it was not too far away, maybe Perthshire or, 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 or somewhere near, relatively nearby. And we were on a wind-blasted hillside one day, 15 years ago, maybe. And we were, like I said, filming days are long days. And we were doing little bit, grabbing little bits of film. He was telling us about some aspect of history. I can't remember what. Probably something to do with Jacobites. I don't know. I can't remember now. And in a gap in the filming, while, we, while, there, while it was raining or whatever, and we were, it was just him and I, the, the camera crew were whatever, 20 yards away. And uh, he said, hands in pockets, a, a serious guy, an academic, a guy, a historian type person. And he was standing like that on the hill. And out of nowhere, he said, you know, a couple of years ago, or, or no, he said, he said, a lot, a lot of years ago now, I was on a road just over there. He pointed and he said, it was at night in the winter time. It was raining, terrain, dreadful night, dark, barely see, windscreen wipers, 
and he he could see you know, a guy on the road ahead of him walking in the same direction that he was going in. And as he approached, as he got closer, he realised that it, the guy was hopelessly un, un, unprepared for the weather. It was like like a, a light jacket and trousers. He was soaked to the skin. It was cold, winter. So he, he pulled in, wound down the window. It was way before the days of electric windows. Wound down the window and said, you want a lift? Or whatever, give, give you a lift. And the guy jumped in. Young guy, bearded. Um, uh, so he, he jumped in the passenger seat, soaking, water running off him. And my guy put his car into gear, headed off down this single track road, whatever, windscreen wipers, really having, I mean, headlights, you know, peering ahead, just paying attention to the road. And some some time had passed and he thought, I better talk to this guy because, you know, it's been 10 minutes now. And he looked across and there was nobody there. No one in the passenger seat. The seat was dry. What the hell just happened? Now, I, he, he, I said something, you know, asinine like, wow. When he told me this story, I said, I don't know what to make of that. He said, neither do I. He had hands in his pockets. He wasn't being extravagant about it. He wasn't being storytellerish about it. He just recounted it deadpan. Now, as I say, I don't think he was making that up for me. Maybe he was, 1% chance. I think he was, I think something had happened to that guy 20 years previously, 30 years previously that he couldn't explain, and he told me. And I listened to it and I thought, like you, mate, I've got no explanation for that. That's strange. <laughs> That's, where do you go with that? He wasn't drunk. He was driving a car in the 70s. He was on his own. He was on the way from wherever, wherever somewhere to elsewhere, picked up a guy, gone. Now, I ask you, what do you do with that, Lewis? I don't, I mean, my, my, as you've mentioned there, my mind, the first thing I went to was, was he drunk? Was he, you know, was there any substances involved? That's the first place I go to. But as you mentioned there, if he's driving, that sort of eliminates that possibility. So what you're left with is, yeah, unexplainable. If he wasn't making it up, and, and yeah. you know, with, with ghost stories, you've always, you've always got to allow for that. You've got, a, you've got a file somewhere or a, a folder in the Munster story where you go, completely made it up. Yeah. This guy looked me in the eye and for whatever reason decided to tell me a, a completely makey-uppy story. That's possible. But the context of the guy, the, th the thing we were talking about, it was serious academic. Why? Why would he, why would he tell, why would he spin me a line? I honestly, hand on heart, if I had to testify in court, I'd say, no, I don't think the guy, I think that guy, I, I mean, when you come to, when you start looking into these stories, you think, well, you know, people will tell you, scientific, people who are, who are looking rationally and soberly for explanations will say, well, people have their subconscious at play all the time. You have, I have. You're unconscious, you're subconscious. You, me, we're prod, all of us, we're products of everything that's happened to us good and bad, light and dark, yesterday, today, 20 years ago, it's all in there. It's all in there. You know, being processed and repurposed all the time. 
and you've got an unconsciousness running all the time, which means that whether you're aware of it or not, you're sometimes approaching situations and approaching a, a next encounter. And there's, there's stuff going on in the background, which may play into the way in which you interpret the next 10 minutes of your life. That is true. And, f and from time to time, depending on your subconscious and your unconsciousness, that might, that's, a, that's giving you a perspective through which you are seeing the next minute of your life. So, you, and, and so you do allow for all of that. But I would say that all of that is part of the necessity to not dismiss what people say and go, that's just nonsense, or you just made that up, or you were completely mistaken. You know, you saw something else that was rational, and for whatever reason, for 10 minutes, you interpreted it in a completely irrational way. I think a more mature and reasoned understanding, at the very least, would have to allow for the possibility that there's a better explanation for what these people have experienced. And I think they're experiencing phenomena. I think they're experiencing something real, which at the moment we don't properly understand, have the, have the equipment to detect, and we don't necessarily have the, 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 the framework, the context in, in which to understand it. Now, stories are one thing, um, evidence and, and tangible things you can point to and look at are another. Now, I think we're entering an age where it's going to become, these conversations aren't going to be as interesting because it's so easy now to just say AI could have made that or, you know, the it's so hard to distinguish between what's real and, and what is fake, deep fakes, we've seen it all. But in terms of sort of, infamous old photographs now i think one that causes a lot of debate is um the photography of the, of the brown lady random hall yeah. yes how do you assess visual evidence like that and for you when you look at that photograph does that add or take away from the case for you that photograph to me hand on heart looks like the classic i mean for people listening who haven't who, who don't know the story there's a for country life magazine a photographer and assistant were in rainham hall a stately home and they, they were set up for a photograph they were like you know country life it it, it popularizes and tells people stories about you know fancy houses uh, you know and it did it a hundred years ago and it's still doing it now and so they were there in Raynham Hall and they were all set up for a photograph of this, you know, quite grand. I mean, you know, not particularly spectacular, but a, a wooden staircase. And and as they took the photograph, apparently somebody saw something. The, the assistant said, are you seeing that? And the photographer took the big box, old fashioned camera, took the, exposed the, the lens, put the thing back in, flash went. And when the thing was developed, there's an, there's an image of this, you can see the staircase quite clearly, but there's, well, what you might, I suppose, reasonably call a smudge in the middle of the shot that's called the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall, 
which is uh, an apparition uh, that had been described long before the age of photography, or before the age of photography, and then a, a photograph apparently caught the brown lady of Raynham Hall. And when I look at the image, it looks to me like the classic image that you get of the Virgin Mary. And if I say the Virgin Mary, for most people that have got any kind of familiarity, at least with with uh, Catholic iconography, they'll, they'll probably get an image in their head of of, of a woman, uh, you know, in in a in you know um, in a gown or cloaked, really. So that it's only only her face and then long clothes, and her and her maybe her maybe her feet or her footwear exposed at the bottom of the image, and it, 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 that's what it looks like to me. So it does look like a superimposition of an image of the Virgin Mary, but out of focus and and smudged with within this thing. That, but I, I'm only saying that because that's when I saw the image. I've seen the image many times, and that's always what I think of when I look at it. However, and it, and it did. I mean, it comes at it, it. You know, it came at a time. Or during a period of time when um, stately homes were looking for income, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, um, you know, safari parks and uh, motor museums and all sorts of things were being uh, added to stately homes as as people as times changed and 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 aristocratic families could no longer afford these great piles without bringing in the public and there and there, and there was a, a period of time during which oh there's a ghost here there's a ghost there people had had amongst other things as well as a, a scone and a cup of tea and a and a, a shot a, you know a, a, you know a, a look at the lions and the giraffes people might see a ghost so there, there was all of that going on at the same time and Although Raynham didn't really, never really has fitted that profile of the kind of stately home that was trying to attract the general public, all of that, all of that, it, it was all, it, it was all happening at, at around the time where that, that kind of apparition was happening elsewhere. And so I'm not, I'm not particularly persuaded of that photograph. I look at it, I don't know, you know, it's an image of, ooh. Ghostly, there's a ghostly image in the foreground of a photograph, but it's not. I don't find that to be the most compelling evidence. But it, but my my not being especially convinced by that image, and it is probably one of the most, if not the most, famous images of a ghost in, ever taken in England. But but my not being per, especially persuaded, one way or another, about the authenticity or otherwise of that image doesn't does not diminish my and it does not in any way close my open-mindedness about other people's experiences in other places and you know that the, the Raynham Hall picture is only one we've all seen them you know there's stuff on telly all the time go haunted this haunted that and whatever glimpses of this that and the other um, but bogus, if it is bogus, bogus stuff does not does not necessarily, uh, you know, doesn't it does not in any way does not in any sense mean that everybody else's testimony is unreliable.
I think a, a great place um, to wind down this conversation is this book is um, around locations in, in Britain and um, you've done many programs and, and, and projects on, on the history of Britain. And when I think of the landscape of Britain and my experience, it does seem like the the perfect place to go hand in hand with ghost stories. Now, I think of where I grew up in South Wales Valleys and, you know, all around you are, are very wooded areas. There are a lot of, um, I just thinking back to the walk between my house as a child and, and the local town centre, you'd have to walk down this trail and there were trees arching over and it's, it's quite an eerie, an eerie place. And you look up and I, I live in a valley, so you have these big overarching mountains You'd have the mist coming over the mountains. Britain to me just seems like the perfect place for ghost stories. What do you think it is about Britain that just goes hand in hand with so many famous ghost stories and, and hauntings? That's a good question. I think It often it often sounds like a, a strange thing to say because you know people think well the world's here and the, the continents and the countries whatever have always been here you know or the landscapes have have always been here but the fact the fact remains that it, it, in our archipelago the countries have been here for a long time when you come to comparing them to countries elsewhere in Europe. For example, you know, there's been an England for a thousand years understanding itself as a place with a name. And likewise, Wales. <laughs> Wales and the, and, the, and the Cymru have been there for a long time, understanding themselves in an unbroken tradition, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium, mythology going back, you know, beyond the reach of time. Scotland again, Ireland. These are these are places that have felt themselves to be real, and have been populated by populations handing down generation after generation after. I mean, it's all up for play now. I mean, there's a lot of flux going on in the world now, right now. It has been for you know ten or twenty years, but up until that point, these were old places. And Welsh, you know, you're talking about Wales, Welsh, Welsh mythology. You know, it reaches back deep, deep roots, going all the way back. And so, you, you know, the, the idea of what we used to call when I was a child, Chinese whispers, yeah. you know, the, the idea that something gets passed, you know, send, send reinforcements were going to advance becomes send three and fourpence were going to a dance, you know, that old anecdote. Yeah. Stories, stories get passed down through the generations, and and a bit like you know, like the fourteenth photocopy of the original, in the days when we had photocopiers, it gets a bit blurred. You know, if you keep photocopying from the photocopy, you lose the definition. So people, the focus, it become things become a bit blurred, and harder to interpret. If if you're looking at the you know, the original copy, the original thing, then a photocopy. 
then a photocopy of that photocopy and a photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy. You go all the way down, you end up with something that's a bit hard to look at. And you might look at that and get it wrong. You might slight, you, you know, you might not, whatever, the Raynham, the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall. But it's not, that's not to say that if you could actually go from that blurred image back to the original, you might go, ah, ah, right, I, I get it. And, and some aspect of it is still there in the in the blurred copy. You say, ah, right, yes, I see why people have seen that, but but it's really this. You take out all the intervening blurring. And so I I, th I think I think that um because we live in countries that are old and they have long, long traditions of folk story, and people in the modern era in the 21st century are invited to think that ah oh, it's all just theories and and you know, and dragons and all the other things that you know that people might associate with Welsh legend or or Celtic legend or Anglo-Saxon folklore and myth. It's all just nonsense. It's not. It has within it. If you could get a clearer definition, if you could get away from the smudging of time, you'd get back to the the precise, sharp image. And some of it's still there. So, so in answer to your question, when you say, why why is this such a place of ghost stories? It's, it's because there's been people here for thousands of years telling the same stories over and over and over again, down through the generations. And within them, what we've got now in the 21st century, there's a bit of the truth. It's a bit indistinct. It's got a bit vague because of the retelling and the retelling, you know, saying three and four opens, we're going to a dance. It's coming. It's a little bit vague, but some aspect, the truth is still in it. And so that, you know, that's why, and, and that's true all over the place. You know, you go to, all over the place. There are ancient cultures, you know, in China, in Japan, in Africa, in Central America, in South America, in the indigenous, when you get in Australia, when you get in amongst the indigenous populations and you listen to what it is that they're saying, you know, the Australian, like as you know, you talked about um, uh, ancient wisdom and within the, you know, within the Australian Aboriginal, the indigenous populations tradition, they talk about, or they seem to talk about droughts that happened tens of thousands of years ago. And they seem to talk about meteorites striking the earth tens of thousands of years ago. They seem to have a folk memory of things that happened in geological time. And it's possible that they do. Possible that they don't. But it's at least possible that they do. And, you know, when, you got, when you've got those long traditions coming down, the reason that those stories keep on getting past generation after generation however they they get slightly confused and there's maybe in, inconsistencies and mistakes creep in the reason that they keep on being told is because because at the heart of them they're true there's truth that's why they last they last precisely because they're not nonsense Nonsense gets, people aren't stupid. Nonsense gets dismissed. People hold on to the truth and they keep passing it. And it maybe gets a little bit, 
you know, indistinct, a little bit smudged around the edges. But, it, 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 but people hold on to it because it's true. And as I said at the beginning, people have been telling each other stories about the survival of the, of the spirit or something after death since the very beginning. Which means that even before there was writing, people were telling each other that. And there has to be a really, really good reason why those stories have lasted as long as they have. I think we've just brought it perfectly full circle. Um, really appreciate that explanation. And you put it so poetically. Um, I'm sure everyone will agree. Now, before I let you go, please, uh, let's let these guys know because I have this book on Audible, um, but I I will be getting a, a hard copy soon to go next to my copy of it, uh, Wisdom of the Ancients. Please let everyone listening know where they can find the book and more of your work. <laughs> this one. There we go. Is, Beautiful cover, by the way. Props isn't to the it? team. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's that's Transworld. I've been. This is my fourth book, I think, now for Transworld, and I love the the, the design team uh that, that look after all of that i think it's a perfect kind of you know halloween it, it came out around halloween time i think it's lovely but um it's available oh i mean go, i mean I, I always say you know go after your local independent bookshop yeah on your wherever it is down a side street on your high street if there's somebody there selling books you know go there and it, it, all the other all the other sources besides yes there's an audible version i recorded the 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 story myself as well so that you can you can have me in your ear if you want um and uh, i i'll say right up i've always been the books i've written in the past really although i suppose with um wisdom of the ancients that was the first time i kind of allowed myself to speculate a bit more yeah. moving a little bit away from straight history to a little bit of philosophizing and this one's this one's kind of like the the next that that takes that that latitude, and I and I and I allowed myself to just dream a little bit, and as well as telling this, the, the, giving the historical background to places like Ulgrim and and Culloden and the Tower of London and Windsor Castle and places familiar and places unfamiliar, I just allowed myself to open up a little bit and think. Well, I'm very, very glad you did, sir. Thank you so much for joining me again. Um, third time on the podcast, and I hope that it's not too long until you're back on the show for a full uh, time. Lewis, honestly, I say this hand on heart. I'm not blowing smoke. Yours, I'll come back to you anytime. I love your podcast, uh, and I just thoroughly enjoy a conversation with you. So bring on the next one.